In the movie Big Jake, John Wayne's character is asked, I thought you was dead. To which the legendary actor replied in his macho husky voice, Not hardly. Well, his voice is not nearly as husky, but jockey Victor Espinosa has reason to answer the same question the same way. We'll chat with the Hall of Famer as he prepares to return from a devastating injury. Plus, what if horse racing was a team sport, complete with major corporate sponsorship, like European soccer teams? That's coming this year. We'll explain on the season-opening edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They will And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. The date was July 22nd. The famed Del Mar summer meeting had just started four days earlier. That Sunday morning, the 22nd, started out like any other, a sunny, picturesque one at the Seaside Oval. Victor Espinosa, the jockey who had guided California Chrome and American Pharaoh to win five out of six Triple Crown races and three straight Horse of the Year titles between them, was working out a grade two stakes winner, Bobby Abu Dhabi, for trainer Peter Miller. Nearing the finish line, Bobby Abu Dhabi suffered fractures to his spine and sesamoid bones in his leg. He collapsed, unseating Espinosa. The horse, unfortunately, died. As for Espinosa, he also suffered a cracked bone, the C3 vertebra, which is high up in the neck, and the jagged piece of the cracked bone came very close to severing an artery. Fortunately, that did not happen. It looked for a while, though, like Espinosa's career, which landed him in the Hall of Fame in 2017, might be over. But six weeks later, at the end of the Del Mar meet, his neck brace came off. And just recently, he was seen chopping wood in his native Mexico. So incredibly, it seems like Victor Espinosa is getting ready to go. And it is our pleasure to welcome back here to Win the Gate the Hall of Fame jockey Victor Espinosa. First of all, most importantly, how do you feel? I'm pretty good right now. I feel pretty good. I know you were interviewed by NBC not too long ago, I believe, and you still looked pretty beaten up. I mean, uh, how long did it take you to start feeling like yourself again? Months ago. That recently? Yep, yep. Well, take us through the rehab process. What was the rehab process like? Oh my gosh, it's like full-time job. I think it's worse that, you know, being in rehab, they have a real job, but it's just 24-7. Like what sorts of things did you have to do? I pretty much, the hardest part is I was damaged pretty much my upper body, so I had to really like do all like upper body, you know, my arms, my hands, my neck, just so much. Even the smallest little thing that I had to do out of basically a part of my body, like every muscle, a part of my body, that I had to do a therapy and just 
get back my uh, strength and my feeling. And it's just everything that need to function normal, like an and, and upper body. How much of a team effort was that with your family, your agent, and everyone around you? A lot. Every every single thing it, it, it helped me and my part of my uh, my mentally too, basically. And it's all requires, like you said, it's a team. How much, if anything, do you remember about the fall? What happened is that I there was nine thirty in the morning. I I went to work this uh, horse for Peter Miller. The name his name is Bobby Abu Dhabi, right? Before I I get on the horse, uh, Bobby Abu Dhabi, he was not that good. But it's tough to think about now. Think back that we trust the 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 you know like I trust the trainer, which is Peter Miller, and known that the the horse he was not a hundred percent because I worked him before. Matter of fact, I rode him I rode him in uh, in New York in a second, and he was I I did not like the way he. He finished the race. Not that I don't like him, but I, I just don't feel like he was 100%. I went back to work him at San Luis Ray and talking to Peter Miller, and he was saying that he missed some time off after that race in Belmont, and he wanted me to feel it to see how, how he's doing. So when I work him, and you know, I don't feel like he was 100% physically race. And then I come back and I tell him, it's like, you know, Pete, it's, I don't feel like he's right. And I say, okay, I'm gonna, I will check him and, and, and see what, I want to make sure he's okay. You know, I will check him, you know, and see how he come out. I say, okay. So come back to Delmar and I saw him walking out. I didn't even know it was him that I was supposed to work. And then he walked out the stall and he looks outstanding good. And I tell him, Peter he said, you work this horse. He said, all right. I said, well, how's he doing now? I said, don't worry about it. He's perfect. He's 100%. I'm going to run him next week. You know, just give him a good work and, you know, ready for that race. I think we can win that race. And I say, sure. He's like, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. It's like, just go and work him. You know, one of those things. Next thing I know, I did not come back. <laughs> I went straight to the hospital and Bobby Abu Dhabi, he did not make it. Do you remember going down or does that part black out uh, no 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 absolutely i remember everything you know i remember when exactly when he broke his leg and you you know he went straight down to the ground and and i just remember think about it it's like oh my gosh it's like i know this is gonna happen you know it's like why would i listen to <laughs> these guys but it's tough it's tough in my job you know in my part and and next time i know i was just i just can't move you know i hit the ground and i i cannot move I did not hit my head at all. It was just one of those things that I remember everything, you know, but just can't move, you know. I was conscious. I was, like, remember everything, but I cannot move my body. And that was probably, for a minute, I thought, okay, it's not a big deal. But a few seconds later, when I can't move, then, you know, it really, like, hit me. You know, I started worrying about it. It's like, what happens in here? And the worst thing is that I had no pain. That's I think the hardest and the worst thing, you know, I cross in my mind because when I can feel any pain, something's not right <laughs> and I cannot move. So there's two things in one. And I, by that point, I even know 
what even thinking about it. How does this compare with other injuries that you've had in terms of the experience that you just mentioned and then the rehab? Oh, not even close. I mean, I have injuries before I fractured my wrist once and I broke it once and it's not even a big deal. Maybe I will have a concussion before that. I have no idea. We don't even have that in our mind before, you know, as professional jockeys, no one knows that how many concussions they have before. I don't even know how many concussions probably I have. You know, those things, they don't know. They would never check on us in, in any sports, I think. Now they do, but not before. And this one, it was a tough one. It was the toughest experience I ever, like, witnessed in my entire career and basically my life because, you know, I never had that before. I have an accident before, but nothing like this. And the rehab, I've been in rehab before, but nothing like this. I'm telling you, this rehab, it was the toughest rehab I ever done in, in my entire life because I, I, was dealing, I was dealing it with a lot of small details, small muscles in my part of my body. And it's all up, up the body. And like you say, there's smallest muscle of my upper body into the biggest one. So that was tough. I mean, hours and hours of rehab, it was not easy. I remember a couple of times I almost fell asleep in the, in the rehab because I was just done. I would not want to be in that situation for a long time. And I know if I don't do a rehab, I might not come back 100%. You know, you know, it's not what I want. I want to come back and be 100%. And, and the more I work in my rehab, the sooner I, I will get better. And I know that every single time I go to that rehab, as much as I hate it, I always think in my mind, you know, this is good for me. That's the best for me, and I had to get through, and I had to go down. I was counting the days, you know, when it's Friday, because Saturday and Sunday, I was kind of like pretty much easy days for me. <laughs> Toughest <laughs> days, it was, it was Monday. And then it, it got like, as the, the weekend gets, Closer to Friday, it was easy for me to that rehab, but it was not easy. But and back in my mind, it was the best for me. And the harder I work in rehab, the sooner I get better. I mean, I think I recovered like more six months, five months. I thought it was going to be a, most of the time. Most of the people in rehab would told me a year, but because I put all the work it required in my body, then, then I recover quick. I think uh, dealing with uh, this injury that I have is not easy because, you know, the doctors basically did nothing they can do about my uh, situation. The only ones they can do a little bit is, uh, is the rehab, uh, you know, for me because they were dealing with the nerves, and the nerves is not easy to fix. You know, muscles or bones is easy. But the nerves is very difficult. And like I said, just, you know, working. I, I did not go out of the house for like, well, actually, from the house to rehab for like four, the first four months. It was just your house to rehab for four months. That's it. Four months, constantly, 24-7. That was my life. You know, it, you know I thought I would have it harder than before because I never have the, you know, days off or go anywhere. But... I realized that I have it easy compared to that I rehab. <laughs> <laughs> well, four, four and a half, I think it was four and a half months that I did not go anywhere. It's just 
from the house to rehab. Hall of Fame jockey Victor Espinosa joining us here on In the Gate. How many people, jockeys, trainers, friends, family, have said to you, enough's enough? How much of that have you heard? Oh, my gosh. I think pretty much everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Even my girlfriend, she wanted me to quit. What happened is, is that I got hurt in, in the morning knowing the race time. And uh, it, wanted, it was one of those deals that it was not even basically my job. It was not even like planning to go there. I was just doing a favor to uh, the training, Peter Miller, and I was not ready for that. Now, if it could happen in the race, it will be different. I might just, you know, stop riding. But just the way it like, turned out in the morning, I, I think I still can come back and try to win some more races. I think I probably had to go in my own my own terms, not in just some freak accident that I have. We should all be able to dictate our own terms for the next stage of life. Unfortunately, it doesn't always Absolutely. work out that way. But in this case, what is the process for getting back up on horses and then riding? Are you going to start slowly in terms of the number of horses you work out and the number you race, or how is that going to work? No, actually, I... Uh, the only reason I, I want to just get on the horse is I want to see how my body reacts and how I, I see how I feel. Just to just start. And I feel, I feel good and I will just start riding right away. It's isotherm. West Coast, the inside accelerate, joins them smartly out wide. West Coast is relegated to third and at the quarter pole, it's accelerate into the lead. From isotherm and West Coast under the whip tries to hang tough along the rail. It's accelerate with West Coast dogged on the inside. Isotherm between them running a bold race. West Coast and accelerate, a riveting renewal of the awesome again. Accelerate on the outside with his head in front close to home. West Coast running out of puff has given a good account of himself, but Accelerate keeps powering on. Accelerate two and a half lengths coming away to beat West Coast and Isotherm. Now you, of course, were the regular rider for the Horse of the Year candidate Accelerate before your injury. Joel Rosario rode him to wins in the Pacific Classic, Awesome Again, and Breeders' Cup Classic. Did you watch those races? Yes. Uh, those are the only races I ever watched. First race I ever watched it was the Pacific Classic and then uh, Breeders' Cup. How did it make you feel seeing him win with another rider? <laughs> you know, it's life. I was proud of Accelerate that he win all these amazing races. I don't know that it was a, a different rider, but, um, you know, I, don't, I do not feel bad because obviously I was injured and nothing I can just do about it. Life goes on, you know, and someone has to ride those horses. And, and this situation. So as a professional jockey, I always think that, you know, I go day by day because you don't know what would happen the next day. I think you're any jockey. You know, we're an endangered sport, so it could have happened the other way around. Now, obviously, you're a little biased here, having ridden Accelerate, but you've also experienced how difficult it is to win the Triple Crown, as Justified did last year. So in your mind, who's the horse of the year? <laughs> well, it's going to be tough. I'm not saying that's a political thing because I really know I'm not in that political situation, you know. And I'm not in that spot. Uh, I'm not right in either one now. And uh, I, I think the 
you know, justify being a, the horse that win the Triple Crown is not easy to win that. It's, it's tough. It's, I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> I say it because for experience, it takes 20, 37 years to win the Triple Crown and, and be able to do it and then justify be able to do that as, you know, it is tough. But also, you know, accelerate what he's done just amazing too. You know, it's it's hard to choose one, but accelerate what all these races he went back to back. I think he got beat once, so it's tough too. You know, especially like winning the the, the Breeders' Cup and the Pacific Classic and all the other races. So, so I think it's gonna be tight. To be honest, it's not. I can't even like imagine to choose one of those two horses. Well, we look forward to seeing how that drama goes down, and we look forward to seeing you back aboard come the uh, winter meet here at Santa Anita. So continued good health, and thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, how about horse racing as a team sport, complete with corporate sponsorship on the silks? It looks like it's going to happen, and we'll explain how and where in just a moment. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. In addition to horse racing, I really enjoy watching motorsports. I rarely miss a NASCAR, IndyCar, or Formula One race. If you know anything about how motorsports work, you basically have 10 or so teams in the series. Each has two cars, and each, of course, has a driver, engineer, pit crew, and support staff back at headquarters. Even if you don't watch motor racing, you know that race cars in all of these series are virtually plastered with corporate logos. Corporate sponsorship pays much, if not all, of the freight for race car teams. You don't see too many logos on or around horses and jockeys on their racetrack. But a group of organizers in England are trying to change that, and in one sense change the entire model of how horse racing is presented. Doesn't it seem that every new idea, every new TV show, comes from Great Britain anyway? The group is called Championship Horse Racing, and The Series, as it's being called, is set to start in July. The gimmick is that it will be team-based competition, much like motorsports, with 12 teams, each sponsored by a different corporate brand. Each team will have roughly 40 horses and 4 jockeys, and the races will award both prize money and points for finishing 1st through 10th. There will be 48 races run at 8 different tracks throughout the UK. How is this going to play out from a viewer's point of view? And does it really have a chance to not just work, but remake the sport? For more on championship horse racing, we welcome in its chief marketing officer, Ollie Harris, here to In the Gate. I think it's fair to say that in the day-to-day, horse racing is more popular in the UK than it is here in the United States. Three and a half million people will attend races in the US this year. Six million or so in the UK, which includes jump racing and that's with a total population of about 63 to 65 million people. There are 325 million here in the States. So with things seemingly going well in Britain, what is compelling your group to try a new horse racing model? Sure, it's a good question as well. 
Racing is the second most popular spectator sport in the UK behind uh, football. By some distance, you know, football in terms of people going every week is, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of football clubs, not just in the Premier League. In race terms, we have, you know, two or three, maybe even four or five Sundays, different race meetings every day. So we get a lot of people watching. In terms of the all-round distribution of money and attention the sports get, it's pretty weighted towards the elite level. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about flat racing. We're, we're, we're not really involved in jump so much. So you'll find that, you know, 5% of the horses that we have in training are at the group level. And then the other 95% are not near that standard. So it's not and try and say, right, we need to get all these new spectators because the tendencies are dwindling. It's far from that. What we're looking to do is is help the level, the handicap level, just below the group and the pattern level, get the attention they deserve. And as you probably know, the personalities at the group level are really the horses, justify, accelerate, in our case, cracksmen, enable. That's who the fans follow and, and get emotional about. What we're trying to do is get fans to engage in racing full stop. So we present them a familiar format in the team and league-based system. And then perhaps we can then tell more stories about the jockeys and the stable lads and the people that run the yards and the people that drive the transport vehicles. And what we can do is, is tell all those stories over a two-month period that I don't think there's room for at the group level. Because at the group level, Royal Ascot, we're talking about five or six amazing horses, and that's really the focus of attention. So to dial back to your original question, it is not a case of us trying to increase attendances by a percentage amount. It's about taking the casual viewer or the person that goes once a year, maybe to Ascot or to Cheltenham, to get them to actually pay a more of an interest in racing on a day-to-day -day level. And a two-month league system over the summer period is a good way to do that we think so what will this look like to the average viewer in the uk or the u.s for that matter uh, i think it's going to look a lot different to <laughs> to what people would normally associate with uh, summer flat racing well for a start barry our race uh, events are all in the evening from around 6 p.m uk time till about 8 30 so it's the after work crowd. Uh, it's a bit like going to a you know a 5 p.m. ball game or something like that. So we're not aimed at the the dress up crowd. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's Royal Ascot and and Derby Day. Epsom people like to get dressed up and have a full day out. We're looking more at the casual sports fan who might feel that after work I'm going to go with my friends to Sandown or Epsom and watch some racing in a casual environment. But there's other things going on at the track. Obviously, we, we provide other forms of entertainment. And most importantly, we want the fans and the brands to engage. So the brands that sponsor our teams do so because they want a connection with this very diverse and engaged audience. We want the, the fans to get as much back from the brands and vice versa. And we want them to enjoy the racing in a casual atmosphere. So I think it'll look like every Thursday night on primetime TV or at the track, we're going to get to see some fun, simple format racing and something for fans to really get their teeth into over the two months. What do you mean by simple format? So I think what you might find is if you took someone racing for the first time, and I would wager, no pun intended, that you have found this, that there's quite a lot of explaining to do. You've got to explain where to go, 
where to potentially have a bet, where to find a drink, and then you have to explain what a race card means. And then you have to explain that the number one is the horse in store one, and then you have to explain that those colours mean that it's this owner, that the trainer is this, and the jockey's that. There's an awful lot of information presented uh, when you go racing, and I think if you're unfamiliar with it, it can be quite daunting. What we're trying to do is make that initial sort of engagement a lot simpler. So you've got 12 teams, and they all run in branded colours, and there's six races. So each race has the same 12 colours running uh, over different distances. But really, if you wanted, you could suggest, well, that's all that person needs to know. I want Team X to win this race because I like the jockey or I like the colour or I've read something in the newspaper that Team X are the favourite for this race. I think that that simple format doesn't take away from the existing race goer because, look, 12 runner handicaps are really interesting races and we've got six of them each night. But I think for the casual person, people like my girlfriend or my mother who pick winners based on the name or the colour of the silks, I think that it's, uh, it's a good way for them to enjoy the, the racing without having to get too much into detail. But of course, if you want to get into the detail, it's just like, uh, it's, uh, like it's always has been. Well, as you say, championship horse racing is being broken up into teams. So what is the structure of each team? Who owns each team? Is there a general manager, a team trainer, you know, the equivalent of a manager or a coach? You know, how does it work? Sure. So each team is in, is ostensibly but not technically owned by a brand. So it's sponsored. So let's say Brand X is the is the team name. So it's Team Brand X. They have a racing manager, uh, absolutely as you just alluded to, like a general manager. And then the horses, which are there's 30 horses per team, are provided by a range of trainers. You may have a team that has three younger trainers who pull together, talk to their owners, and provide the 30 horses. Or you may have one of the traditional racing brands who may have one trainer and they provide all the horses because they're an, they're an owner, trainer, uh, and management company. So the key structure, though, is four jockeys, 30 horses, a racing manager, and then the, the, the sort of team staff, which includes the trainers and everyone else. Now, you talked about the comparison with something like the Premier League football and things like that. Obviously, the thing that really drives a sport like that is the passion for it, the passion of the fans to wear the scarves and other apparel and root for particular players or whatever. What do you see driving loyalty to a particular team here the way you have in those stick and ball sports? Sure. So we've got two, what I would say are two major sort of engendering loyalty because you're 100% right. That is what drives team sport. And we're under no illusions that people are going to suddenly walk in and say, well, I support that team because I like the color. And then all the passion comes out in two months. That's, that's unrealistic. Our, our first way of, of engaging with the fans and getting them to really believe in a team is our, is our reward system, which at the moment we're calling we win, you win. The idea of this is that it's quite simple. When your team does well, wherever it finishes in the race, uh, either tokens are generated that go into your wallet and you can spend them at the racetrack or online, or the brand themselves give away particular prizes. An airline might give away free flights when they win a race to, you know, a number of their fan base, stuff like that. So what we want to do is have the brands make compelling reward offers to fans at the beginning to say, well, you know what, support my team because we're going to be good for you over this series. You're going to win a bunch of prizes and we're going to have some fun doing it. The second way, I think, which is the one that's a slightly softer touch, the stories around the jockeys and the people behind the teams. We know 
in, in this country, if you ask most people in the street to name a jockey, they could probably name one or two, a maximum three, I would have thought. And if you're not into racing, these personalities just aren't visible. We want to try and drive the personalities formed as both male and female jockeys and try and get people to kind of engage with them over this two-month period. There's not that many Frankie de Tories around. He's a special sort of guy. But I'm pretty sure that all of these other jockeys, female and male, have great personalities. And people are going to want to follow them. And the same goes for the trainers, who, of course, are in the public eye a bit more. But I think that we can bring them down to a more human level and discuss things in and around the sport with them that I think, again, fans would really like to hear about. And I think then, you know, we involve brand ambassadors and team captains to, to just try and give a human feel to each team. And again, I'm not suggesting for a minute that people are going to be walking down the street with, with scarves and shirts on in year one. I think uh, for us, it's more about presenting an event that, that everyone could watch and have some fun with. And, you know, if you pick a team to support for two months, you're going to win some great stuff and have a bit of fun with it at the same time. Now, we've seen in soccer, football to the rest of the world, and to a lesser extent now in the NBA, that corporate logos appear on jerseys. And it seems that this will be the case in championship horse racing. What role will the corporate sponsors have in the governance of the teams? Well, we've actually uh, pitched it two ways to the corporate sponsors. We've said you can have as little or as much involvement as you like. There are some brands who we've spoken to who perhaps have a penchant for horse racing or have some history with racing or they have a relationship with a particular trainer or set of owners who will get involved with the actual management of the team. And there are others that just want to get into this because they think it's a great opportunity to work with us, but they've put their hands up and said, look, we know nothing about racing. And that's where the beauty of having the racing manager of the team come in. So if your corporate brand wants to be involved, feel free and you know they can work their politics out internally but if they don't want to get involved there's absolutely no pressure on them to get involved in the racing side they don't want to we're talking with ollie harris chief marketing officer of championship horse racing a new series of races starting in 2019 in the united kingdom the way i've seen the corporate sponsorship component of championship horse racing discussed in print it seems like the philosophy is if you build it they will come but for example, a major advertiser in the horse racing world in Britain, Betfred, a bookmaking chain owned by Fred Doan, will be pulling out of the sport. It's a whole other story that we've detailed on this show before. So where do you stand on filling your advertising goal? Well, you brought up a really interesting point, and this runs deeper than, than horse racing in, in the UK, certainly. A new piece of legislation, the fact that banned betting companies from advertising on television in what's called the whistle-to-whistle period. So, you know, for example, a football match, they can't advertise whilst the match is on anymore. There used to be a lot of adverts for in-play betting and so on. Racing is excluded from this. It's the only sport that is excluded from this piece of legislation. So in regards to television advertising, betting companies can still get involved. And online, there don't seem to be any restrictions at all. And that's where most of their marketing dollars seem to go at the moment. Look, Championship Horse Racing has made a very clear point from the beginning that we won't be involving betting brands in our corporate sponsorship. Our racetracks will be will be clean of betting brands. And this is not for, for any pious reason. It's a commercial commercially driven decision that there are two things that major brands found off-putting about getting involved in racing. Uh, one was the association with 
uh, animal welfare and two was the association with gambling. I can give the example of one giant telecommunications company that met with us the other day that said they wouldn't be in the room if we hadn't taken a stance on either of those issues. So our advertising income, as you put it, well, we're going to leave that to our media partners to deal with. We sell our sponsorship model the way we sell it. And this has so far appealed to a lot of brands who you know, aren't so comfortable being associated with betting companies. We have licensed bookmakers as well. So it's not all paramutuals or, or course-based bets. And we have really brands like Betfred and Bet365 and others that, you know, sponsor the majority of, of races here. But one of the reasons we started this business in the first place was to try and prove that racing can bring in income from other areas. It's important for the future of the sport because as more and more political pressure comes on gambling companies and, and their responsibilities and so on, you know, there's a high chance that the sponsorship revenues that racing gets from those, you know, could well fall. So we're trying to get ahead of the game and we're trying to prove corporates are interested in, in racing, but it just takes one or two tweaks to prove that. One of your chief organizers, Jeremy Ray, said that another important component of attracting advertisers to the series is to not allow jockeys to use whips on the horses. Tell me about the evolution of that wrinkle into your structure. So, yeah, horse welfare, when we were doing our early research, the the welfare of the animal from both um, the corporate point of view and, you know, the sort of general woman and man in the street was 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 a high priority. There are a lot of people that don't understand the intricacies of racing, and you know some people might take it that you know these animals are being used for our entertainment and pleasure, and so on and so forth. Now, there is a fairly strong list of brands that don't get involved in racing as a result um, of this, because Barry, if you can imagine, in the format of our competition, we have points and prize money paying down to tenth place in a twelve-runner race. Now, the the tenth place horse and jockey receive one point towards their you know their their points accumulation over the season. It wouldn't really work for our sponsors or for us to see uh, horses you know running for ninth and tenth place being overwhipped or whatever. So there's an existing set of rules in the UK called the hands and heels rules, which generally have been applied to apprentice races, um, but when we approached the BHA and suggested that we ran the entire series with hands and heels rules, that means the jockeys are allowed to carry a whip and use it for steering, but they're not allowed to use it behind the knee. The BHA, I think, was supportive of it. It's another initiative that, that they can test to see how it works. We've had good feedback from jockeys and trainers on on it. And you know what? It's just one of these things that, in our case, for so many brands, was a non-negotiable. So Again, when we're really reacting to market forces rather than we're certainly not getting politically involved in the use of the whip and how and why it's you know good or bad, we're simply responding to the request of our potential audience and essentially our clients, which are our, which are our team sponsors. Now, as you mentioned, these races will be run on consecutive Thursday evenings from late July through mid-September with six races run per day for a total of 48 races in the series. I know summer days are long, but I don't think these tracks have lights. I mean, how late in the day can you go? Yeah, it's it's a good point. Put it this way, although we haven't announced the exact fixture dates yet, we have been working closely with the race courses on 
which fixtures go on which days. Now it's a little bit lighter in certain places towards the end of our series, uh, the first and second week in September. By the last race, it might be getting a little dark in certain areas. I think we've come up with some fun ways of mitigating that. But we may look into other ways of illuminating the track. But I, I think the reality is we'll, we'll probably just just start a little bit earlier to make sure that the last race is still in good daylight. Oh, you kind of intrigued me with the potential alternative ways of doing this. It'd be great to see everybody in the building bring their cars to the front and shine <laughs> their headlights. That that would be interesting. You know, obviously there there is floodlit racing at certain tracks. I mean, we we're not at those venues, so it would be a first, and that means that it takes time to get done. So, year one proof of concept. I imagine we'll probably take the quickest and most simple route to solve that issue because you know, sticking floodlights in on some of these venues is, is not going to be an easy task by any stretch. Well, floodlights notwithstanding, what are your goals business-wise for year one of championship horse racing? I've actually had that question a few times this week, and the most important thing for us is that the concept is proven. And, and by that, I mean that the public reaction to the format is positive enough that we think it's you know, it's something that we can expand on. We are at pains to say that we don't want to affect the group and, and pattern level of handicap horses at a certain range from below the, in, in the UK, from below the 90 rated range. So we don't feel that we disrupt any of the group events. We don't affect the breeding industry particularly. So we just hope that the public and those people in racing that maybe have their suspicions or doubts about this at this point by the end of next summer hopefully we would have turned uh, a few of them round so they realize that for this level of horse and therefore the size of the trainers establishments and the size of the owner in terms of you know we're not talking about ruling anyone out by any stretch but i think that some of the the owners who have horses in our handicap range may not get the uh, chance to, to run for this level of prize money ever. So to be able to be part of a team and run for this sort of prize money each week, we think it's quite special, actually, because I think it brings some balance to the calendar. So I think our success will be judged on, on people's opinion. And as I think I said before, we're incredibly market-orientated. So this whole series has been designed with people's input from owners, trainers, major racing bodies, and the like. So we will do the same with our paying audience because at the end of the day, this, this show is supposed to be for the fans and so our success will be based on their on their positive approval, I guess. Very, very interesting. We'll be have, we'll have something to look at in England after Royal Ascot is over here in the States. So thank you so much for a few minutes to share with us, Mr. Harris, and best of luck with the series in year one. Thanks, Barry. Look forward to seeing you stateside sometime soon. Our thanks to Ali Harris and to Victor Espinosa. The comedian Dennis Miller once wondered if the job of coroner is the doctor's role that has the lowest strife, since even if you screw everything up, the worst that happens is that you gain one, that the corpse comes back to life. The racing world has so little vision, it's not kept up with the times, which is why so many tracks around here have closed. Hollywood, Exarban, Bay Meadows, and all of New England... Hardly a trace remained after each site was bulldozed. 
But like Dennis Miller's coroner, the racing world just gained one. Yes, Colonial Downs is back for 2019. For the past five years, the stately European-style turf course has sat quietly, no racing to be heard or seen. It'll likely be a modest schedule, but with a network of off-track parlors and new historical racing slot machines, it appears the ground at Colonial Downs is figuratively rated firm. Miller's joke might be more prescient than he means. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.